You're listening to Africa Rights Talk, a Center for Human Rights podcast series hosted by Dominic Meisters. Welcome to the conversation. In today's episode, we're here with Professor Rashida Manju, who's Professor in Human Rights Law at UCT and the convener of the Human Rights Law course. We are going to be talking about women's rights and in particular domestic violence because one of Rashida's previous roles was as Special Rapporteur on Violence Against Women, Its Causes and Consequences. So thank you very much, Professor Manju, for joining us today. If you could just give us a bit more background as to what your Special Rapporteur work involved and what you found in terms of violence against women. Thank you, Dominique, and thank you to the listeners. Um, my work as the special rapporteur was to seek as, as an independent expert in the system. So I didn't work for the United Nations. I didn't work for any government or NGO. Um, I continued to teach uh, part-time while I, I held the mandate for six years. And primarily, it is about seeking and receiving information from different sources, whether it's civil society organizations, governments, treaty bodies, etc., to try and identify problematic areas in different parts of the world, geographic spaces, different countries, as well as what are the manifestations that the international community should be focusing on. So it's seeking and receiving information, which you can do one of two ways. One is to conduct investigations into a country. So uh, sending a request to a government to conduct the investigation and engage with them on the challenges that they face in terms of whether it's laws, policies, programs, etc. And the other way is receiving complaints and investigating the complaints and making um, recommendations and observations to states. Um, another function is to work closely with other UN bodies so that there is a holistic way of working on the issue um, with treaty bodies, with other mandate holders, etc. Um, but using international law as the basis of our work. Um, and, you know, um, participating in meetings, conferences, etc., not only to raise awareness of the work of the mandate, but to raise awareness about the issues, the challenges, and often as independent experts, we also had recommendations based on our areas of expertise and experience. So maybe we can talk more about some of the investigations that you conducted in particular countries. Were there common themes as to the type of violence that were you were finding, or is it very country-specific? So I think if we think about it globally, uh, the issue of domestic violence is a huge one in every country in the world. No country in the world can argue that domestic violence doesn't exist in their context. And domestic violence... <coughs> excuse me... <clears throat> can manifest in physical violence, psychological violence, sexual violence, um, economic violence, which we don't think about too often. <clears throat> Sorry. And I think the statistics currently from the World Health Organization, from other UN agencies, is one in three women in the world is in an abusive relationship, whether it's physical, psychological, or a combination of all these factors. Um, and that is cause for concern. 
Then there are certain manifestations that we find in certain parts of the world. So the argument is that female genital mutilation as a form of violence is exclusive to Africa. When it does occur in the global north, in North America, in Europe, etc., um, it's linked to immigrant communities that have come to these spaces. The issue of early enforced marriages has become a huge issue. Uh, the issue of trafficking for many years was on the radar uh, of the world community, and now I think you know it slipped a little bit, but it's it's coming back on the radar. Um, the issue of sexual violence in conflict has also become uh, a huge issue. The United Nations Security Council has passed seven resolutions on women, peace, and security. So starting in the year 2000 with the resolution 1325, which looked at conflict and post-conflict societies and the issue of sexual violence. And over the years, the adoption of new resolutions was to look at implementation, enforcement measures, participation of women in post-conflict building of societies, etc. Understanding that women's inequality, discrimination against women, forms part and parcel of the violations that occur during conflict. The one concern that I've had, and I've articulated this in my reports, is that there has been a privileging of sexual violence in conflict as if it's something new. Now, sexual violence in conflict has occurred, whether it's the Rwandan situation, the former Yugoslavia, the First World War, the Second World War, the Comfort Women situation, um, the Vietnam War. So women's bodies getting used as part of the weapons of war is, is not a new phenomenon. Privileging it as if it's something different, for me, does a huge disservice in terms of violence against women, broadly speaking, because what it ignores is that the violence we see in conflict situations is a continuum of the lives of women. So women in consultations in Africa that I've held, women in Africa talk about the low-level warfare that they face on a daily basis in their homes and their communities. And if we privilege only conflict societies, DRC, etc., Colombia, then we are basically ignoring that this is an everyday reality for women uh, in terms of domestic violence, in terms of rape and other forms of sexual offenses. And so privileging it only in conflict society does a huge service, uh, disservice to the issue. Could you explain for our listeners in a bit more? You're saying it's a continuum. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by this, and how is it? A, how does it evolve? So uh, the the theory of the continuum of violence is that, and and you know I'm not the first one to talk about it. Liz Kelly in the UK has that sometimes we we want to separate what happens in private spaces from what happens in public spaces. So the private pri public dichotomy, as we talk about it in the literature. So we take less seriously what happens behind closed doors in private spaces, which inevitably is domestic violence, either at the hands of a partner, a spouse, a father, son, brother, whatever. And then if someone gets raped in the public sphere by a stranger, we feel more like it needs to be, it, it feels more offensive. Whereas what is happening in a private space behind closed doors is not as offensive. So part of what goes on in people's homes 
And what, get, what happens out in the community is a reflection, it's a continuum. And then if we take that to its logical conclusion in times of conflict, where you have everything from displacement to, to vast levels of insecurity, the behaviors that are manifested, and, and you know, unfortunately, the large majority of perpetrators are, women, are men, and women are disproportionately impacted by violence, whether it's in the home, the community, or in conflict situations. So what we see in the conflict is the same kind of mentality that women's bodies are fair game, that women's bodies are part and parcel of the tools of war. And when we talk about the tools of war, the weapons of war, the way women's bodies are used, in a conflict situation, sometimes the intention is to eliminate a whole ethnic group. Sometimes it's to dishonor a tribe. Sometimes it's to send a message to the state in that conflict environment that you can't touch us, you, there's no, you can't do any accountability. And so the intention and motivation might be different in a conflict situation, but the, 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 the mode of violation is as would occur in the home, but it's exacerbated in a conflict situation because probably justice systems are broken down, the police don't exist, there's competing rival, rebel groups, etc., and in that level of insecurity, the violence gets exacerbated. But we, if we only focus on that, then we don't look at root causes. So part of the continuum is to understand root causes. What are women's lives like on a daily basis? What are the individual barriers, structures that are a are a barrier to the effective realization of human rights. So what are the root factors at the individual level, at the institutional level, at the structural levels? And if we don't understand that when it happens in people's homes about socialization patterns, about you know, toxic masculinities, etc., then we have easy answers that in conflict what happens um, is something new, it's something dreadful, it's something we should be offended, whereas we should be offended when it happens in people's homes as well. So, and, and it doesn't help in terms of accountability when you have the state treating crimes that happen in the public sphere differently from crimes that occur in the private sphere. So the kind of attention, the kind of budgets that are allocated to public crimes and public safety are not the same as private security, private, I mean, I mean security in the home, in private spaces. Um, just think of the reaction of a police person, right? A domestic violence victim phones or goes to a police station and someone tries to mediate and says, look, it's your husband, kiss and make up. What about the children? When someone gets assaulted in the street and the police are called, they don't use that narrative of, you know, look, it was he's drunk or you know whatever they arrest people, and so this public-private dichotomy, not understanding root causes, not seeing violence in conflict situations as a continuum, uh, then leads to us privileging certain forms of violence, and then we send a message to society that violence against women in the home is normal, or if it happens in your community, it's normal. Uh, we send a message that your life is less valuable. 
that the realization of your human rights is not as important to the state. And it leads to impunity, which then means that we see widespread pervasive patterns. And I think we see that in South Africa as well. So in every country, you know, to round off that question, in every country, domestic violence exists. And in some countries, there is a view that it's the most pervasive form or manifestation of violence that exists. Um, in some developed countries, I heard the argument that sexual harassment in the workplace is the most pervasive violation that occurs. And I think in a country, you know, let me name a country like, say, Sweden, right? If you're going to argue that sexual harassment in the workplace is the most pervasive manifestation of violence against women, then you are articulating that you're a developed society and that laws and policies work, that you have systems in place to provide services, and where you're lacking is not sufficient attention to the workplace. And it also means that more women are in the workforce in, those, in, that, in that country. For me, there's a level of denial in those societies about how pervasive domestic violence is. The Fundamental Rights Agency of the European Union carried out a study about two years ago, and the highest levels of domestic violence were in the Nordic countries, um, which says a lot because in terms of gender equality, non-discrimination, women in the workplace, women on boards, whatever, these are countries that have strived to reach a certain point, and yet the, those were the countries in terms, I think it was 27 European countries, and to the Nordic countries that are the top three in terms of prevalence rates of domestic violence, which says a lot. How then, if you're talking about its socialization factors and a lack of accountability, supposedly Scandinavian countries have very good accountability. That's what, you know, their on systems paper. are. Yes, on paper. How do you address them? Because you clearly can't take a one, one approach only. Does it have to be both? And how, how do you tackle this? And like in your work, how are you tackling this? So I think the, the, the one thing is, I think in terms of accountability, normative frameworks are important. We have to have legally binding obligations on states for states to operationalize their responsibility, their obligations. So that for me is a crucial factor. But it's in and of itself, it's not enough. So you can have a wonderful law. I mean, South Africa has an amazing domestic violence uh, law. Then you have to ask, you have to follow the money, as feminists have said, follow the money. And you have to ask the harder questions of the state. What is your budgetary allocation to make sure that this law is interpreted and implemented effectively? Interpretation means that you have to train the service providers who are going to interpret the law, everyone from the police to the judges, right? So there has to be training for them to understand, and not just understand black-letter law, because people who are in the legal profession can read and understand black-letter law. But if, you, if they don't understand the, um, the context of violence against women, the root causes of violence against women, then you interpret the law in a very acontextual manner.
right? Because you don't understand how pervasive, how widespread this problem is, what are the structural factors, what are the institutional factors, what are the individual factors. So, you know, I, I remember when I was doing my master's and, you know, a woman telling me, a magistrate saying, why do you stay? If, if I was beaten up, you know, in black and blue like you, I would leave. And that's a terrible question to ask a domestic violence survivor without knowing black women living in a township, no financial resources, the religious leaders in her community, her family are saying, don't bring shame on the family. So, you know, if you don't train people to understand, it's not only about your response, um, but it's the way you understand these manifestations, these, these violations of human rights. And then how do you apply the law? And implementation of the law, sometimes in societies that have resources, means we need specialized services. So you need the shelters so that a woman can leave, right? Because when a woman decides to leave, it's the most dangerous time in her life, and it can lead to her death if she continues to live in that environment. And that's a, that's a growing problem of the number of women that are killed. And for me, the killing of a woman is the ultimate act of violence. This woman has been in the system at some point or the other, whether it's a social worker, health services, justice officials, etc. So you have to provide the services so that there's effective implementation of the law. So if you're going to provide a law that says you can have a protection order, courts have to be accessible. Accessible in terms of distance, accessible in terms of language, accessible in terms of if it's an application you can do on your own without a lawyer, so there's no legal fees. You, you understand what it is you're applying for, right? So you've got to have services there that are specialized that can you know, encourage you to do it. So that's, you know, um, I think in countries like Norway, Sweden, Iceland, the government has put money into services. Um, so there are shelters all over the place. There's, um, there's service provision. There's a, a legislative framework. But... Why is it that the prevalence rate is still high? Is it because as a society, women are still not valued in equal terms, right? Is, it, is there a problem in the legal system that judges and, and magistrates and police don't understand? Um, in uh, many European countries now, are there large immigrant populations? that won't use the state services. And I think that's a real factor in many of the countries in Europe now where there's a fear, either because you're undocumented or you feel like you don't trust the state. Why would you go and use the state, right? Because the state hasn't actually been very proactive and responsive to immigrant communities in many parts of Europe and North America. So it's not a simple thing of let's have a law and life will change for everyone. It doesn't work that way. It's the law creating an enabling framework that demands that a state act because a state has a positive duty to protect against and prevent harm. And that you can only do, do through legislation. Uh, so, you know, whether it's at the UN level, which is at, at the regional level or a national level, it's important to have enabling frameworks. Then you have to do the hard work of people understanding those legal frameworks and how to interpret and how to apply, which means you've got to train all the service providers. 
Um, you've got to have services that give women options if they want to leave and move into shelters um, to make sure that when they're in shelters, their children can continue schooling in a safe area, that they don't have to come back to the area where they lived. You know, if you don't, if you insist that your children can't move school in, in the middle of the year because you have to stay at the same school, which means the perpetrator knows where the victim's going to be at a certain time to pick up children, which is very dangerous. So these are the kind of things we don't think about because we think, okay, you know, violence against women is a human rights violation. Let's pass a law. But we don't think of budgetary allocations. We don't think of policies of programs, implementation, service providers, etc. Is that some of the areas you found hardest to get government responses from when you were... Work. I, there's two things. One is most governments, <laughs> officials um, in, in some countries, the minute I say violence against women, they would start talking about domestic violence because that was their narrow understanding of violence against women. And maybe part of it is because the prevalence rates are so high. The media sensationalizes these stories when a woman is killed, when someone's you know assaulted brutally, etc. And maybe that's what's in the mind of people, that domestic violence is the biggest problem. And it could be in terms of the statistics, but when you don't have an understanding about how violence manifests in so many ways, as I mentioned, whether it's FGM, whether it's early enforced marriages, whether it's trafficking, uh, virginity testing, you know, there's this range of uh, manifestations. So that's the one problem is, how do you understand violence against women in a holistic way? How do you understand root causes at the individual level. So what's her individual circumstances that are a cause and a consequence of the violence? Could be financial, could be just a lack of confidence, could be having no family support or community support, etc. So not understanding those things, then you start writing laws or have policies or do budget allocations in, in a way that doesn't is not cognizant of that person's reality. Then you have to ask what are the institutional problems? Why will people not use? You know, some governments would say, but we have a law and women don't use it. What are we supposed to do, you know? Why are they not using it? And governments don't necessarily want to probe that question. Because simple research, you go and you do a survey, a demographic survey, and you ask people, why won't you get a protection order? And it will range from, the personal reasons for not getting a protection order to institutional reasons, to structural reasons. Structural reasons, I'm trying to think which country it was. Um, it was one of the Latin American countries that I was in, and rape cases. Women wouldn't uh, report rape cases because they had to pay for a forensic examination before the prosecutor would open a file. Now, that's a structural barrier, right? And there's a law that says... You have to pay for the forensic. Now, she doesn't have the money. She's been violated. And the system is now telling her, I'm not going to believe you till you bring me a forensic test. And you pay for the forensic test. You know, it's adding insult to injury. So these are some of the problems where there's this lack of looking at it through these lenses of the individual, the institutional, and the structural. And how do we factor that in? Not everything can be factored into law, right? Because we know the more you define in law, the more you limit. And so law is usually a very broad-based framework. But you can, in your policies, in your budgetary allocations as governments, have a consciousness about it. 
Now, in the developed world, what I found was, and particularly in European countries, this notion of mainstreaming. So, you know, a victim, a woman victim of violence, and I speak of women in the broadest term of biological and women who self-identify as women, it's everyone, you know, whether you got attacked on the street or whether you got attacked in your home, we're going to treat all violence the same. We're going to mainstream um, remedies, etc. So we're not going to have specificity because we're a gender equal society, you know, would be the argument. And it's discrimination to have shelters for women and no shelters for men. And Norway did this. And no one was going into the men's shelters in Norway. And yeah, no, it was ludicrous. And, and a lot of money going into setting up men's shelters and no one using it. And when you ask the men's groups, so what's the problem? And they'd say, well, you know, they're so ashamed. They don't want to be stigmatized. I think, oh, this is a feminist argument when women didn't want to go into shelters, right? Because they didn't want to be stigmatized. They didn't want, I mean, there would be repercussions from their families or their communities, etc. But that is many moons ago. Now women look for shelters and look for shelters that are responsive to their needs. So when you do gender mainstreaming, you go into neutrality and you say we treat all people the same because that's what equality is. Right, and we don't want to be accused of discriminating by privileging. It's not privileging to take context and reality into account of any particular group. And we talk about vulnerable groups, you know, and children and older people tend to fall into that or the disabled very easily. No one seems to have a problem, but women who are being violated in their homes and the communities are not seen as at risk, at you know, vulnerable. So, in, so for me, you know, part of it is when we go, when we lose the specificity, then I don't think we can adequately hold states accountable. Because the specificity gives you the tools to say, you have a due diligence obligation to do X, Y, and Z in terms of protection, prevention, punishment, provision of effective remedies, so that you can break these, uh, these, um, these patterns. And the state has a responsibility because these are citizens, right? Um, whether they're refugees, asylum seekers, or whatever, when they're in your space, you as a state has a responsibility to protect against and to prevent harm. So the protection is one challenge. The prevention is another challenge. And I think now there's a move um, towards, let's look at prevention and ask what works. And part of it is, well, we have to look at perpetrators. So, you know, the men and boys, the proliferation of men and boys programs has become part of that. And I do think you have to work with perpetrators, but if it comes at the expense of work with women, then we have a challenge. And in the early days of this movement, men were setting up their own organizations and donors were starting to move or cutting from the same slice of the cake to fund women's programs and men's programs, and that becomes a challenge. So, you know, it's like layered and layered, and when you think you've just won one battle and specificity, shine a light on an issue, because, you know, when you think about human rights violations and you think of torture, right, Guantanamo Bay, you, you, you shine a light on it. Think of Ebola and the lack of international response initially and then the international community coming. Think of the spotlight on terrorism. The, what women experience in the home is a form of terrorism. You know, when you unpack it, it's torture. It's a form of terrorism. You know, when a woman 
tries to stay up for half the night till he falls asleep and she can hear him snoring because he's got a gun under his pillow. She doesn't want to go into that bedroom because he's got a gun under his pillow. She knows what that means. We don't. She knows what that means. That is an act of terror. She lives on walking like on eggshells in her home. I had a case once that I had to deal with where he would lock every door and window when he went to work. And the whole day she was stuck there. She couldn't even open a window. So she couldn't talk to anyone, which was part of the power and control issue uh, in, in these cases. Um, and so there was no escape for her. And so one evening he came home, he came in, locked the door behind him, put the TV on and was sitting and demanding dinner, which she had to heat up because he came late. She had put the kids to bed and Something in her snapped because she knew what was coming, that the silence was ominous. She could feel the tension. And if you haven't experienced that, it's very hard. If, you're, if I'm sitting as a judge, you know, I would think, well, wasn't there a spare key? Couldn't you, you know, get out? You have three children who are teenagers. Four of you, couldn't you overpower him? Couldn't you find... So we can do all that speculation, but she's in that situation. So she's in the kitchen. She can feel the tension. And she, while she's warming his food, she boils a pot of oil. And she walks into this darkened room where he's watching TV, and she throws the pan of oil on him. His head third-degree burns. And that's when she could take the key and escape with her children. She, she was convicted of um, murder because the battered woman syndrome didn't, defense didn't work. She had a terrible public interest lawyer, uh, you know, a legal aid lawyer, and she got 12 years or something. But the patterns that she'd been through, um, and there was nothing that the lawyers could do. Uh, we could just support her and, you know, make sure that the social workers sorted out the kids and they went to her family and not his family. He demanded custody of the children and then we could provide testimony of the patterns that this woman had lived uh, through. Um, but our system wasn't ready to look at her and use the, what's called the battered woman syndrome defense, that this had reached a point. And she knew that night that either she was going to get killed or one of the children was going to kill. She knew that in her, in, her, in her very fiber because she knew the patterns. She knew the signs. She knew the weapon was there, you know. Um, and there's nothing she could... She couldn't go out during the day and go and call the police and get a protection order. She couldn't leave and go to a shelter. And at that time, there weren't many shelters for women of colour, basically. So, yeah. It's, it's really... It's heartbreaking, and it breaks my heart um, that the international community, the world community, pays lip service to violence against women, as opposed to understanding it the way we would, the way we feel when we see terrorism, the way we feel when we see torture, and other, you know, grave and systematic. For me, this is grave and systematic violations of human rights that occur in women's lives on a daily basis, whether in their homes, their communities, in institutions. I wrote a whole report on violence against women that are incarcerated. And what I looked at is what are the stepping stones to women getting incarcerated? And domestic violence is so implicated as a factor in, in women getting incarcerated because either they act in self-defense and kill someone or maim someone. 
and and you know if you happen to be a certain class or, or color or whatever there are more punitive measures so in in my investigation of the US uh, African American women are being incarcerated at higher rates than any other population group in the US and you know when you talk to them or talk to the police it's because African American women are viewed as aggressive and so when a cop is called when a police person is called on a domestic issue their attitude is i don't care who's the primary perpetrator i'm arresting you both and then of course if she's inflicted injuries on him then she's incarcerated so i looked at when they incarcerated what are the causal factors and domestic violence plays a huge role while they incarcerated is there violence going on and yes there is everything from cameras placed so guards can spy on you when you're having a shower or sitting on the toilet which is a form of violence it's psychological violence to denial of sanitary pads which is violence when you're menstruating no sanitary pads to uh, trading um, benefits for sex so you can have a visitor you can have you can you don't have to be on kitchen duty but you have sex with the guards and so trading those kind of benefits for sex uh, so so the violence continues while they in the while they incarcerated in prisons in detention centers etc when they come out there's violence again the violence of families ostracizing you because you brought shame to the family the violence of losing your children because you're an unfit parent you were in jail my god you can't have your children back and you know probably families have turned your kids against you and there's the psychological violence of that and then there might be violence from the family or the community because of the dishonor the shame whatever and they don't want you back so it's like a life cycle approach if you're incarcerated and i think my god if you're going to incarcerate more and more and more women at every stage before during and after they continue to face violence so that's another example of the continuum in in settings of prisons and you know refugee detention centers and things so for me it's like what what needs to happen if violence against women was a medical epidemic we declare a state of emergency globally we should have reached that long ago because we've reached a state of emergency when it comes to violence against women and no country can say this is not happening in our context well professor manju thank you so much for explaining the complexity surrounding domestic domestic violence and generally violence against women and also the dangers of privileging certain types so thank you very much thank you for having me thanks bye This has been Africa Rights Talk with me Dominique Maestras in conversation with Professor Rashida Manju. Join us in our other episodes as we continue to explore further human rights issues. Thank you.